Welcome to The Private Project. Welcome back, everyone. In this episode, I speak with Elizabeth Noonan, the owner and lead conservator at Flux Art Conservation Corp. Working in private practice for over a decade, she has gained experience restoring an incredible variety of damages on increasingly unique media and large-format artworks. As the former president of Alliance for Response New York City, Beth gained additional expertise in the area of disaster planning for collecting institutions and provides disaster response coaching for major art museums across the country. Prior to relocating to Philadelphia, Beth worked with the talented conservators of Luca Bonetti Corp, preserving and restoring modern and contemporary art collections, and as part of the impressive conservation team at the American Museum of Natural History. Her previous conservation experiences also include internships at the Center for Puppetry Arts, the Bernice Puahi Bishop Museum, the National Museum of the American Indian, the American Philosophical Society Library, and the Denver Art Museum. Beth is a graduate of the Buffalo State College Art Conservation Program, where she received a master's in art conservation with a certificate of advanced study. In this episode, Beth and I discuss her background, how she began taking private work to supplement her museum's salary, and how she transitioned to a full-time practice based in Philadelphia. We also discuss the nuances of contemporary art conservation, her thoughts on certification, perfectionism within conservation, and more. Full disclosure, Beth is my current boss, and we have discussed several topics included in this episode previously, which leads to a slightly more informal tone at times in the conversation. And now, here's my interview with Beth Newman. So first of all, I have to say that this podcast would not be possible without you and Kristen, because you both were so open and honest about your experience and you really made me believe this podcast is possible. So it's a pleasure to speak with you. Um, Let's start with an introduction. Would you give a brief intro to your business and what you do? Sure. My name is Beth Noonan, and I am the owner of Flux Art Conservation, and I am a contemporary art conservator. I treat primarily paintings, but also painted sculptures and surfaces and some oddball material objects. And how did you discover conservation? Um, I discovered conservation in community college art history class in I think it was like a survey one or survey two art history class and the professor had put on a video as he was inclined to do often um, and I was napping in the corner of the class and I woke up and there were conservators in white lab coats laying on a plank stretched across the back of Rembrandt's night watch and I was like oh that looks cool. And I immediately went home and got on the internet. These were early days of the internet and um, searched for art restoration and found out about the two programs um, for undergraduate that existed at the time. And that was kind of it. I had just made up my mind. So where did you go for undergraduate studies? Um, I began undergraduate in my local community college. I started my college career being a veterinarian. Um, So I was a couple semesters into veterinary science and doing doing good in all the science classes before I realized that it really wasn't for me. Um, and then I came across art conservation. I was like, oh, this is also science. So it, it really kind of tied together and tied what I loved doing, but I'd thought of more of a, as a hobby um, with something that I could actually visualize as a career path. 
Um, so after I saw that my undergraduate options were the University of Delaware and the University of Denver, I decided to go to the University of Denver because I had my sights set at the time on the University of Delaware for my master's program. So I wanted to have a different undergraduate and graduate study. So I went to the University of Denver, which not a whole lot of people know about that program. It's very small. When I went, I was one of two conservation students, and I was the only one of the two who graduated. So that's how small it is. Um, <laughs> It used to be a little bit bigger and when the Rocky Mountain Conservation Center was in existence and they did a lot of training together with that regional center. Um, but after it closed, they were still trying to make new connections with local conservators. So when I went, they were working with the Colorado Historical Society, which did not have conservators, but they had collections management. And they were also working with Denver Art Museum. So did you have your first hands-on conservation experience at University of Denver working with different communities? I would say yes. Um, my undergraduate program was, the it was called a Bachelor of Fine Arts with an emphasis on pre-conservation, pre art conservation. So it was a BFA program that was designed to give you all of the credits to get into a graduate program for art conservation. We had a couple conservators who would lecture at the university and then I worked, I did kind of like a work study at the Denver Art Museum. So it was I think two days a week for the afternoons and so I did you know, my first condition reports there and surveys and I did technical studies. So we were encouraged to create, you know, recreate um, something from the collection. At the time I was interested in ethnographic collections. So I was, I recreated a lot of uh, porcupine quillwork embroidery. Um, and that was my, actually my BFA thesis project was the conservation of porcupine quillwork um, embroidery. After I graduated from that program, I, I had actually talked to Debbie Hess Norris um, as I was graduating and asked for some advice. And she recommended, you know, just getting more experience, just as much experience as possible. Uh, she did recommend taking additional coursework if I could. She was saying, you know, if it, if it seemed relevant to conservation, take it. You know, it's only going to help your, your application. So I moved back home to East Tennessee and took another semester's worth of school at the local community college. I took like a physical anthropology course and another photography course and a backup chemistry course, just kind of tagging additional things on, saving up some money. And then I was waiting for the next cycle of internships that were going to get posted. So I found an internship at the American Philosophical Society Library here in Philadelphia, and it was a paper conservation internship for the summer. And I was really lucky. I found um, like free housing. That was really great. Um, I worked with Ann Downey and some other conservators at the Philosophical Society and it was great work. It was a lot of scraping backings. It was a lot of paper men's. It was a lot of making boxes for books and it was a really good way for me to know that I was not going to be a paper conservator. <laughs> it was really fun um, but you know, there was a lot more out there and there was a lot of objects out there that I was very interested in as well. And, and it was it was good to do it. And I learned a lot of patience and I learned how it feels to get into the flow of treatments and how satisfying that can be. And then after that, I ended up getting a pre-program internship at the National Museum of American Indian in Washington, D.C. So I moved to Washington, D.C. And that was a fantastic internship and very well-rounded. They had had many, many pre-program students, so they knew how to really flesh it out and give you 
good experience and really prepare you for the graduate program. So I did Audi testing, a lot of Audi testing. I set up their digital camera. So this was early 2000s, so it was one of their first digital cameras. Got to work on a lot of objects, but also a lot of textiles because it's a combination lab. So I got a lot of the cross material and cross specialty experience, which is what I wanted. I just really nerd out on the materials. <laughs> awesome. And so after that internship, you then applied to graduate school. Is that correct? Can you describe that experience? Sure. Um, it was my first time applying and I applied to Delaware and to Buffalo. I did not apply to New York because I was completely intimidated by New York City. Um, I was intimidated by the second foreign language requirement as well. Um, and I just was like, two, two programs is enough to choose from. At the time, the UCLA program wasn't in existence yet. I had done the portfolio review at at Delaware before, so I'd had a sense of the program, and I didn't know anything about Buffalo. I did not get a chance to go up there and check it out before my interview, so when I did get offered an interview, uh, that was my first time experiencing Buffalo. Yeah, I got interviews at both, and I got accepted into Delaware and waitlisted for Buffalo, but Buffalo was my choice. Mm -hmm. And can you describe your time at Buffalo? Sure. Um, my time at Buffalo was 2006 to 2008. Um, so right before the 2008 bubble burst. So we were all dreamy kids in grad school, just, you know, ready to burst out onto the scene. Um, I, I personally had a really great experience and I've always been trying to recreate that feeling of having just this group of colleagues who were tra tackling a project and a problem together. Mm -hmm. um, my third year internship was at the American Museum of Natural History um, in the anthropology lab. They were all very instrumental in teaching me the ways of museum life in, a, in the beginnings of a recession. <laughs> yeah, how was that a influence in your experience there? It pretty much felt like we had the rug cut out from underneath us. It was our, it happened right in the middle of our third year internships. So we knew that we were being spit out into the workforce when all of the funding was being dried up. So even before positions were posted, we knew that they probably weren't going to be. So the regular kind of way of going to grad school, doing your third year, finding a one-year position, maybe you know partially funded with a grant, partially at the museum, and then being able to get a melon for a year or two, that was kind of the goal that I think a lot of people were picturing for themselves. And then by that time, you were three years post-grad, and that at the time tended to be the base minimum for jobs, mm -hmm. which is you know like kind of like a three-year residency, which is a little bit crazy when you think about it. So that was, I think, what a lot of people, myself included, had in mind and they just disappeared. There weren't those small internships or if they were, they were unpaid um, or just so minimally paid that it just became very, very difficult. Uh, and I would say directly influenced how and why I started taking private projects. Um, I took my first private work while I was in my, I was, I'd say, at the end of my third year. Immediately after graduation, I saw the lay of the land and knew that my museum salary, which was very low, um, would have to be supplemented. You know, I had it in my mind that I needed to get some savings. I needed to get something saved up to try to get ahead of where I saw the economy going, quite frankly. Just knew that things were going to become a, a little bit more difficult in those first years immediately after grad school. So my first project was a referral from one of the conservators at the Museum of Natural History. And, and it just kind of took off from there. Correct me if I'm wrong, but up until this point, you haven't worked with other conservators in private practice. It's just been museums. And so how did you learn to structure that first private project? 
Mm, that's a good question. I mimicked how we did it in school and at museums. Um, Buffalo has paperwork for when they take in um, the objects from the community. So James Ham was the paintings conservator at the time, and he was very transparent uh, about the paperwork process. So an incoming receipt, um, writing up the proposals, uh, and you know issuing the paperwork and getting signatures before things are done. Uh, doing all the photography first and the written written assessments first. You know before diving in there. So a lot of that was just following that same format. Um, the legal parts of it uh, was really fortunate because the conservators in private practice just had revised their contract, I think in 2009, maybe 2010 at the time. So I had just gotten a copy, a newly revised copy of that. And I had spent a fair amount of time at the museums reading legal documents uh, all of the legalese that is included in various grant applications. Um, so I'd gotten a kind of a feel for the language and could get a sense of what was needed to cover liability. It's a lot of understanding liability and what you need to protect yourself is making it very clear what both parties are agreeing to. And how did you figure out how much to charge in the early days? I asked my colleagues um, what they were charging. I know what other contractors were charging the museum. Um, my partner at the time was also working at a museum and so they knew what contractors were charging that museum. We were able to ask my fellow classmates, um, you know, similar experiences, you know, what were they aware of what conservators were charging and so that made it local to my area at least we were in uh, New York City at the time. I knew that I needed to charge uh, obviously less than what other people who were more established but also not so low that I was undercutting um, and also not so low that it would look like I did not know what I was doing. And where did you perform those first treatments? Was it were you able to use the museum laboratory for those? We okay. No. no I was not able to use the museum uh, laboratory. The only thing I was able to use the museum laboratory for was uh, looking at samples I had prepared underneath mm -hmm. the microscope. So really like non-consumable uses. So I was working out of my apartment in Astoria, Queens, and we had security on the doors and windows and just making it as protected as one can be in the city. It was something that we were aware of that other conservators had been doing in New York. Um, even people who had been working for quite some time were still working out of their homes and their apartments in New York City. So I think it was something that a lot of museums and galleries were, were comfortable with. So after that third year internship ended, you're taking on some private work. Yes. Do you continue on into a museum position or do you go kind of full-time in private? After my third year internship, I was employed part-time by the museum uh, doing a risk assessment project. And then the other portion of my time was taken by another department in the museum sometimes. So the traveling exhibitions, um, so a different budget line doing a different, little bit different type of work. Um, and then sometimes this, this other private work outside the outside the museum, but I didn't have a whole lot of project those first couple of years. It was really um, the museum work at Natural History where I was doing a lot of risk assessment and a lot of disaster preparedness. The exhibitions contracts that I was getting were some treatment, um, little small things getting knocked off of little small things as they got installed, and also coordinating a lot with you know mount makers and preparators and case builders for specs and things like that. So learning a lot about 
about that type of work, preparing things for display. Even though I was learning so much about collections care, I was dealing with collections in a bigger, broader sense and less with the individual objects. And I love the objects. I love the materials. I like getting my hands on things. The fix-it aspect of conservation is what appealed to me. While I was working at the museum, I had this awareness of that I was really developing a lot of expertise in preventive conservation, and I didn't necessarily want to pigeonhole myself that way. I was getting to become an expert at something that I did not necessarily want to be only an expert in that. I did not want to be siloed in that way. So that was a, a motivation behind basically taking a second job, which is the private work. At one point, pretty quickly, after my third year internship, I was fully employed by the museum full time. And so it was very little treatment. Uh, and any private work that I was taking on was in addition to my full time job. So when did you leave that mm -hmm. position? And can you talk a little bit about the circumstances that led to that decision of sure. leaving? Sure. Um, in 2014, uh, a colleague who had been working with other colleagues in private practice in New York City told us that she was leaving the position that she was in and knew that I had an interest in, in working in private practice, knew that I had been getting a lot of paintings experience in my private work, and thought that the experience that I had at the Natural History Museum would supplement that studio's uh, work well because it was a contemporary art studio. I had already known these conservators, I'd spoken with them before and talked about collaborating with them before, but it hadn't really worked out. And so when I heard that they were leaving their position, I, I reached out to them and, and talked to them about what they were looking for and offered to give it a trial. And I felt very confident that I would learn a ton from these conservators and from the works themselves that came through the studio. And so what was your experience like working in that studio? That studio is a small studio in Chelsea, New York um, that was very well established. It had been operating for 30 years. The conservators there had really seen the full gamut of artworks and the art world in New York City since the 80s, but worked on all sorts of things. A lot of on-site work and a lot of working directly with artists or with art collectors um, who had big collections, collections that were stored in warehouses or collections that were being cared for by other galleries. Um, when I got to the studio, I kind of naturally fell into a project management role. I was at that studio for four years, then uh, was moving out of the city and decided to branch out and that it was time to do my own thing. At that point, I had treated a couple hundred artworks at that point. I had treated a lot of very strange materials, strange phenomena. I had a lot of conversations with a lot of different conservators and just felt much more experienced in terms of uh, what might come my way and what might be asked of me. I knew what I was comfortable with and what I wasn't. So you decided to branch out in 2018. How Can you talk about the logistics of starting your own practice in 2018? After having decided to leave the, the studio in New York, um, life brought me down to the Philadelphia area. I had been in um, conversation with the owner of Atelier Fine Arts Services while I was in New York. They service a lot of New York and, and uh, the galleries and the institutions there. He let me know of the facility that he had in Philadelphia and how he was renting a lot of studios to conservators in the area. And he thought that there was a really good opportunity for me to, to do work in the area because there weren't a whole lot of paintings conservators working. And there also definitely weren't, it wasn't anybody working on contemporary art. 
and on big, big pieces, big artworks. So that was really what appealed to me. And also the relationship with art storage and art shipping facilities seemed really smart to me. My studio now is adjacent to that art storage facility. And so I can really utilize that relationship in terms of, you know, um, usage of their loading dock and kind of a la carte usage of art handlers. I often get called in to take a look at something to make sure it isn't that bad. Um, sometimes just things as simple as artwork that has worked its way out of the frame during transit. And so did you take ideas from the previous studio that you worked at or were you trying to figure out how to make your own business kind of by yourself? I took a lot of ideas from previous studio. There's a couple different ways to approach it that I've seen. You can rent a space inside of another commercial space so a lot like a artist studio or like a next fab um, those kind of spaces that are designed to be communal workspaces and would have shared services um, but you sometimes don't have the ability to customize things the way that you need to and you might not have all the access that you want. Another option that I see a lot of people do is work out of their homes uh, so that you might have a large house out in the suburbs and you'd have an entire room or maybe you have a garage and a workspace in the garage or if you live in the city it's a little bit harder um, but an, again a workspace another bedroom or a basement. I had done that before in New York and I knew that I didn't want to do that again because contemporary art tends to run large and I wanted to really take advantage of that and I wanted to be the person that could take big stuff because I knew that that was a niche spot. So I knew that I wanted to be able to accommodate large things and there's two ways of doing that. You either work on site where the painting is or you get a large space. I split the difference. I do both. Uh, I don't like to travel things when they don't need to be traveled or handle them when they don't need to be handled. So I am prepared to do a lot of on-site work when it makes sense. And then I also can accommodate large, large artworks in the studio now. Keeping all that in mind when looking for a space I knew I was looking for a big kind of loft style open space and there are many of those in Philly loft apartments that are residential leases or commercial leases a lot of the commercial leases that I saw in Philly were actually too big uh, some of the smallest spaces that I found were 5,000 square feet um, that's a lot of air conditioning and heat right so those were a bit too big also sometimes they were on the ground floor and I didn't necessarily want to be at the ground floor without some level additional level of protection if I felt like I was too on the street um, they just didn't quite feel comfortable. And then when Atelier showed me the space that he had in mind for me, it was 2,000 square feet uh, with the option to have more, a little bit more if I wanted it. And he, he had it tied in to the HVAC and the storage. So everything was just kind of bundled together in a way that made it as close to museum quality storage as one could get. I'm definitely paying for it in rent. Uh, you're paying for that same art storage, but it also does give an impression to clients. When you have a professional looking space, uh, people feel more comfortable putting their multi-million dollar artworks into your care. Even though the quality of work that you do in a big commercial space is going to be the same as you do in your home. Uh, it's just perception sometimes. So it sounds like the space in Atelier kind of fit the needs that you were looking for. Did you have to make any modifications to that space or renovations? Um, when I was first shown this space, it was very bare bones. Uh, there was no electrical in yet. There was no plumbing in yet. There was no lights and the floor wasn't finished. 
So <laughs> I had a lot of, right, yeah, I had a lot of flexibility and, and that was really, that was really neat. That was very unique. I was able to pick and choose what I wanted to wear. So I knew that I wanted two sinks. I knew that I wanted a kind of kitchenette area and I wanted a science-y chemical area and I did not want to mix those two up. So I also was able to pick out a lot of the built-in furniture. So I got epoxy topped counters and epoxy topped tables for a lot of the solvent and acid base usage in the studio. I was able to request a 220 volt outlet in case I ever wanted a big piece of machinery. Um, like a large saw or um, or some of the hot tables uh, might pull power at that level. So I wanted to make sure that I could accommodate that. I was able to design and pick out the lights that were installed. A lot of the beautiful aesthetics that we see in a lot of the modern conservation spaces, I wanted to emulate um, without the price tag. So I was able to do that with the blinds that I chose. Same with these lights. These are LED lights. They're pretty basic. You can buy them at Home Depot, but they have a very clean appearance. So the aesthetic is very modern looking. So other mod modifications, uh, there's an external fume extractor that was installed. Also, I ended up building a partial wall to help break out uh, the photography section of the studio and help block the light. I built an additional freestanding wall that is acts kind of just as a uh, storage wall, uh, an upright portion of the wall that is very sturdy that we can attach crates to and use as additional temporary storage. That was pretty much it. And then I filled it full of furniture. Yeah, I was. My next question is, how much did renovation and and all these what would you say startup costs furnishing yeah. the studio? Yeah, how much did it cost to get all of this yeah. equipment? I definitely went wild the first year. <laughs> there's different. There's other ways of doing it. Um, I put a lot on a credit card the first year. I wanted to have enough surfaces. I wanted to have the equipment that I knew I needed to do good work. So I I would say I probably spent like five or six thousand the first year in furniture um, tables easels and I splurged a little bit on the easels I got I think one of them is sturdy enough to hold a 250 pound painting so it's that's like a two thousand dollar easel um, the other one is you know a, a similar but a step down but not not cheap and there's certain things that yeah you shouldn't cheap out on you shouldn't cheap out on your easels um, the tables that I got I'm actually really happy with they were they were Ikea and they're modular in that I can make them bigger and smaller and they're very flat surfaces. I was pretty strategic about investigating the table tops. So I wanted something that if I accidentally knocked over my bottle of acetone, I wasn't burning a hole through the top of the table. So I was doing a peek at the materials. That's why it always comes in handy to know materials as a conservator. <laughs> um, so yeah, doing a peek on the tops of materials and and then I think a lot of a lot of that money also went into the stock. Uh, so uh, rolls of paper and rolls of tissue and solvents and adhesives. I like kind of want to ask you about um, when your business became profitable. It's hard for me to say because I have a debt on the books, which means that I put money into the business and I didn't pay myself back. Mm -hmm. And that debt has been on the books for like five years. Mm -hmm. But if you looked at my books, it would show me making a profit. I just didn't pay myself back. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. I did not. I mean, when are we calling? When are we calling start? Maybe in from 2019 when you had your studio space. So in 2020 there was the pandemic. 
<laughs> yeah. So in 2018, 2018 was a personally profitable year because I did not have any overhead, right? I had, I had all the hand tools I needed. I had a lot of the um, media, a lot of the adhesives and the small bits um, that I needed to do work on site. Um, but I had no rent for the studio. I, had, I only had my own, my own place. So 2019 was when I signed the lease for the studio in Philly and, and I had the lease for probably about five months. I was the only one working. I didn't have any staff at the time. I was doing a lot of the setup stuff. So I was spending a lot of money buying all that furniture, painting the walls, building storage uh, inside the studio and also doing work as I could and as it came in. So it was really slow at the beginning. It definitely wasn't full-time work. I was working full-time on setting up the studio, but it definitely wasn't full-time treatment, billable hours. And I would say that things picked up at the beginning of the pandemic. Once I had enough pieces of furniture in the studio and felt like I could start accepting artwork, I let some of my clients that I was working with in New York know, and some of the paintings that I couldn't work on in their space because the treatments were too involved, or required equipment that I didn't have there or required a lot of solvents. I said, now I have a space for you to bring that artwork. So I strategically planned to have a grouping of 10 paintings uh, sent to the studio. And that was gonna be my first big batch in the studio. And I was kind of thinking I would spend the whole year working my way through those 10 paintings, which I think is a pretty ambitious pace for a, for a first year in the studio. and. One month after they arrived, uh, the pandemic hit. So they were here at least, but all of a sudden I did not have art handlers who could help me uncrate. And I did not even have staff at the time, but I did it in, in a lot of ways, having this space, I was really fortunate in that I had the space. I was already set up and I was ready to go when things shut down because not everybody shut down. Um, and I actually did end up having quite a lot of work throughout the pandemic, not from museums, um, from private collectors. So I want to transition now to clients. So thinking about like how many, how many clients were you able to translate to the new space and then also strategies for new clients? When I moved out of New York, there were several art collections and galleries that I had been working with that I was the primary contact and the primary conservator for over the years. And I developed a really good relationship with them. So when I moved out of um, New York, you know, I let them know where I was going and what I was doing. And if they were interested in continuing a relationship with me, I just let them know where I was going. So there were a couple clients who decided to continue to use my services in, in Philly. So those were very welcome at the beginning um, and really allowed me to take these kind of bigger bites and put a lot of that furniture on credit <laughs> with the knowledge that I was going to have some treatments coming. And so the relationships that I made from the 10 years that I was in New York City, you know, really came through at the end. And that's not just client relationships, but relationships with conservators and everybody knowing where I am and what I'm up to and what I'm interested in and what I'm capable of doing in terms of conservation services. So when I came to Philly, I went out of my way to let people in New York know how close Philly is to New York. There's a lot of shuttle services between New York and Philadelphia and Washington DC area. I say that because a lot of the work that I do is on contemporary artwork that is actively on the art market. Um, so it might be consigned to galleries, it might be at an auction house, it might be in a private collection but is being loaned for gallery shows or for museum shows. 
Um, so it still has a very active use life. But I've found that a lot of the damages to artworks happen while they're being used before they have gone into settled collections. Makes a lot of sense. Um, what type of business insurance do you have and how does that align with the type of work that you're doing? Sure. I used a lot of resources from AIC about insurance and from the conservators and private practice group, but insurance can be a little confusing. It can be a little confusing to know what it is you are protecting from whom. So the, some of the basic insurance that is required is business liability insurance. And that's more of if you're doing business on somebody else's property um, and you get hurt or you hurt them or you hurt their property and vice versa. It's more about accidents happening while business is happening. <laughs> I'm not an insurance broker, but from my understanding, um, that's that's how business liability insurance works. Fine arts insurance is an additional policy that is not necessarily required and not necessarily carried by every uh, every conservator. It is more specific to the kind of work that we as conservators do. So it is insurance for objects that are in your care. So there are things that don't belong to you, but you are responsible for for a time being. The errors and omissions policy is a limited policy that is just that. It is even more specific than a fine arts policy. It is the oops factor. It is when the conservator is actively making an error or omission mm -hmm. as opposed to an accident. I get my insurance from the Hartford and uh, Huntington T Block. They cater to conservators. And I think that their rates are comparable to other insurance companies because you're actually dealing with somebody who knows what conservation is. And so I think that they can adequately assess what the risks are. The business liability insurance is responsible for the studio and the business related contents in the studio, but not necessarily other people's artwork. That's the more expensive insurance. And at what point in your business did you get those two policies? I got the business liability insurance policy earlier than the fine arts insurance policy, for sure, because I was doing work on-site at other people's place. The fine arts insurance policy I got once I started feeling like I was responsible for other people's artwork. So I picked up the fine arts insurance policy once I got the studio here in Philly and once I started getting artwork of a certain value. Once I got my first million dollar painting in my studio, I decided I wanted to sleep. Um, so I got an insurance policy. Speaking of money and cost, mm -hmm. how do you charge and has it changed from when you're working in New York to Philadelphia? It has changed. I charge per project, though I tend not to give a day rate or an hourly rate unless I'm really pressed. And if I am pressed, I will tell people a number and then I will tell them that how many hours or days it takes is also up to me. That number is ultimately a per project number. I charge more now that I have a studio because I have a lot more overhead, but I'm also able to do a lot more for the artwork. I do offer discounts at times to institutions uh, with low budgets or small collectors. If it's someone who, you know, they only have a few artworks, they're just starting their collecting. I like supporting collectors. I like supporting people or who are supporting artists. I know we've talked in the past about how there is an idea that people in private practice are making a lot of money because they charge so much. Yes. Um, but you mentioned that there is a lot of overhead costs that also contribute to the bid that you give to a client. Can you talk a little bit more about like how overhead costs 
eats up that estimate that you give to clients? Sure. I can only talk about how I've done things. So when I was first coming up with a number um, of what my kind of ballpark or average daily rate is, I had a number in my head because it was what I'd heard other conservators charge. And a lot of these conservators were in New York City. So they had New York City rent and New York City expenses. So I at least had kind of a high number. I had a high number to work with. I also knew it was a number that the clients that I was working with, the ones that are are in New York City, are going to be familiar with. So it's not going to be a foreign number to them. It's a number that they're used to paying. I also knew that I needed to calculate what my real expenses were. So I only have that number that some other conservator gave me. I have no idea what their expenses are. I don't know how big their insurance policy is. I don't know what their utilities are like, any, any number of things. I don't know what their benefits are for their employees. So I can calculate those things for myself and see what that number comes up to. And then I basically subtract it from what a proposed daily number is. And so I have my real actual expenses on a daily basis. um, And that is how much it basically costs me to be in business. And that is my rent averaged out over business days, Um, my insurance policies, that's my utilities. And then it's all of these scattered expenses that can really fluctuate from month to month, depending on what the projects are. So like some months I might buy more materials or some months I might hire more art handlers for things or I might have to use the loading dock. But I have a usually a rough cost on what those additional expenses are. You want to have a cushion of a profit in that number because you aren't necessarily doing billable hours every single day. So you need it to average out a little bit over time. What are the types of inquiries you get and how do you make estimates based upon those types of inquiries? So some of the some of the common inquiries that we would get, I would say, are so I'll get a phone call and I'll be like, oh, I've had this painting and I just noticed it's missing some paint or I just noticed it's flaking. Can you fix it and how much is it gonna cost? Similarly, we'll get the email that says essentially the same thing. You know, I've got I've got this painting that my father has or you know, of my uncle and it needs a light cleaning. How much is that gonna cost? Um, often these will not have pictures and they'll be describing things that are the most obvious uh, damage and usually missing everything else. So these are what I call sight unseens and I navigate a lot of these sight unseens all the time. It is just people who know that restoration is a thing, but don't have a sense of how it works or how much it costs. So I'll often reply and ask uh, for some pictures and then I'll give them a sense of the process. So the process is I get as much information as possible. If I have enough information, then I can do a site unseen estimate, um, in which case I'll give them a ballpark range of what I think it would cost to do certain number of steps and what those steps would be. If I can't get enough information, then I'll ask them to bring it by, um, or if it's too big, or if it makes sense, I'll go see it. And then similarly, I'll go on site, I'll take a quick look at it, take some pictures, usually with my cell phone, very basic stuff. Might do some light testing, by which I mean I'll bring a water-based solvent and I'll bring a, you know, mineral spirits solvent and I'll try to find the solubility edges. So I'll try to find the sensitivity edges of some of the media if I think that it needs a heavy hand of treatment, just so I have a better sense of what it is 
I'm getting into. The testing has to be done very carefully. You should always have permission um, before you do that. Let them know and you know do it in an inconspicuous place. At that point, once I have laid eyes on the object, I have kind of the basic list of steps that it goes through. So there's going to be a documentation step. There's going to be a dry cleaning step. There's probably going to be some kind of wet cleaning step, either locally or overall. And then it's going to be whatever the major area of concern is. Um, so flaking paint or a tear or a distortion or it's completely come off the stretcher and you would tackle that bigger portion in a series of steps and then you would give a ballpark range so I often give a low end and a high end and then I would give that to them as well as the document that serves as our service agreement so this is a summarized version of the contract template uh, that the conservator and private practice group offers. And that tends to give people a sense of what will be done and how much it will cost. If it moves forward into a formal proposal, all of that information gets transferred into a letterhead with a place for both myself and the client to sign it. And that serves as the formal contract. You mentioned in the beginning of your answer that often you're communicating with clients who maybe know that conservation exists, but might not know the ethics and values of conservation. So do you negotiate for the conservation work that you're doing, the ethics of the practice? I will sometimes get asked to do things that are not how we approach conservation, like repainting um, a section. I'll explain that that's not what we do and why. And I feel like you get pretty good at giving a couple sentence answer of like, that's just not what conservation is. More frequently get people balking at the cost or asking if the documentation portion can be not done um, to reduce costs. And I tell them that um, it has to happen as part of my business um, and that it is part of the cost of, of doing the work. I will sometimes offer to reduce costs or negotiate lower costs if the client is open to me utilizing aspects of the treatment for branding and marketing purposes. So I'll ask, oh, can I take a lot of pictures of this treatment for my Instagram or for my website? Can we make a blog out of it? And so that's a way where I'm getting a little bit more um, out of the experience um, and I feel like I'm profiting from that without it necessarily being financial. Another thing is if the treatment is fairly straightforward but requires a lot of hours, um, so like dry cleaning of an extremely large painting or polishing of an extremely large surface, I'll ask if the client is open to some of the work being done um, by supervised students and so that can also be used to offset some of the costs. It makes sense. I'd like now to transition to employees. So have you expanded the team since you started in 2019? And can you describe that experience? Sure. I started off by myself in 2019. In 2020, when I was ready to take on somebody part-time, uh, the pandemic happened. And at that time, I hadn't really decided if I wanted an administrative assistant or whether I wanted a conservator. And I had need for both. Um, there was a lot of administrative work that I was finding myself doing in the studio, and I didn't want to necessarily be doing all of it. I wanted to be doing the billable hours portion of the work, which is the conservation treatment. But I also wanted to work with another conservator because I like working with conservators. And I love the conversations that happen when multiple conservation brains are chewing on a problem. So I ended up putting out a call and getting a 
conservation undergraduate student respond who was interested in doing the administrative work but has a conservation background. So I thought that was a good start. Um, somebody who is willing to learn and do the administrative work to help me set up the studio, but then also was interested in nerding out into, in some conservation talk. Halfway through the pandemic in 2020, I was working with the, some of the conservators at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and a student there was finishing her internship and so she started with me after her internship was over. And this is still in pandemics. This is end of 2020 and all of 2021. Um, so it was just the three of us in the studio for all of 2021 just slowly doing treatment and trying our best to to network with everybody in the area while everybody was being very careful and you know and then people move on so I've I've had a conservator move on and I've hired another one and they've moved on and I've I've got some conservation technicians now and I hope to be bringing on more conservators of varying levels um, into the future there's a lot of work coming into the studio and there's a lot of flexibility in terms of what could be done here. So I'm open to whoever wants to participate in, in working with me on either individual projects or full-time employment. Um, there's definitely a lot of opportunity here. And what are some of the things you look for in a private practice conservation hire? That's a good question. Um, I like nerds. Uh, I do. I want somebody who is very comfortable being nerdy about conservation, um, who wants to chase down those questions and do what what do we call running down the rabbit hole and, you know, getting a little carried away in figuring things out. Um, I want somebody who's passionate about it, but also at the same time, it's a job. Um, so I want somebody who has an understanding of what a healthy work-life balance is and wants that for themselves. I'm always looking for people who are a little self-directed, know what they want out of their job and out of their career and know how to, how to ask for it. I like people who are very direct. Yeah, I think a lot of flexibility. Uh, we run into a lot of problems here that do not have straightforward answers and sometimes we are left feeling very unsatisfied with how treatments turn out. So being flexible in your expectations, um, I think is very important for this job. Yeah, being willing to, to experiment and being curious about what could be done. Before we go into some of the challenges and the type of work that goes on in the studio, I have one more question about work-life balance. So how have you set up healthy work-life boundaries for yourself? I would say that the healthiest work-life boundary that I have set up for myself is that I do not work more than 40 hours a week. Yes, I am the business owner and I do not work more than 40 hours a week. That is correct. I don't want to. I love conservation. Anybody who will talk to me will, will tell you how much I love conservation. I'm passionate about it and I really geek out on it and I like learning about it and I like studying it and I like doing it. And I absolutely would clean a painting for free if it was a satisfaction and cleaning and I have pretty much done that before but there's so much else in life that I also want to do I think pandemic really hit this home for me I want to feel more connected with my community I want to feel more connected with people who are outside the conservation field and outside the art fields I think that the arts and the fine arts can be kind of classist sometimes um, and I was sometimes at points in my career feeling overly academic um, I grew up on a farm in East Tennessee and sometimes that feels very very far away I take a lot of time now to try to reconnect with the other things in my life that are more important or as important as our conservation. And I think that's healthy because I think that it comes back into the studio for me when I when things go wrong with treatment. I can see that while it is a big deal for the business and it's a big deal for the artwork and it's going to be a big deal to take care of, it is a small part of my entire life. 
Sorry, I thought of another question before we get to work. Um, what ethics and values are important to instill in your studio? Honesty and transparency about what we're capable of doing. Um, transparency about what we can expect, what we can reasonably expect to accomplish. And transparency and kind of a self-awareness about what we don't know, uh, which is a lot. Uh, I've been at this for quite some time now, almost 20 years, and there's so much I still don't know. And it is, it is what appealed to me and is what made me train at first as an objects conservator. And what was so attractive was that uh, I thought I would never know everything. Like you can never be a master objects conservator. You can drill down and become a, a niche master of something, but you know, it's objects, like everything's an object. Um, and I liked that. I liked that idea that I was going to be a permanent student of objects conservation. And I think that that's also just true of contemporary art. I am a permanent student of contemporary art because the materials are always changing. The media is always changing. It's literally changing as it dries um, or doesn't dry as the case may be. So I think constantly learning about what new approaches can be done to that um, is really important to, to kind of stay open to that, to be curious and to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get in the field too is like, again, being a lifelong learner and always pushing yourself and learning more. And then some points it gets overwhelming, like feeling like you're never going to know anything. And it's hard to look at all the progress you made and like almost be content with everything you've done because you see so much that you haven't done yet. And you can get this weird imposter syndrome it's like imposter syndrome but also with a jadedness like i've been doing this for so long how is it that i don't know what i'm doing right right <laughs> yeah what is the documentation black hole and why is conservation documentation so important um the documentation black hole is a phrase that i came up with to refer to where documentation goes for artwork that is not in a permanent collection it came from working at a studio in new york that was getting a lot of artwork that was changing hands so it might have been on consignment to one gallery and then i got consigned to a different gallery and then maybe it got bought and then maybe it went up for auction so over the course of five years um, i saw a painting twice in the same studio and so when it came back to me the second time i asked the new owner if they had copies of the treatment documentation knowing that it was my treatment and they told me that it had never been treated and that no documentation existed so that's that's when i realized that that my reports in some cases may have been going off into a black hole um, when I send the treatment report. And this is incredibly frustrating in private practice because we know that treatments happen. We know that interventions happen and some interventions complicate future interventions when you're not aware of them. It's also really complicated for conservatives in private practice because we are often being asked who did the damage or who did the restoration. With artworks that were being created in the 60s and were still being shown in galleries in the 80s and the 90s, they may have been treated by conservators with the full consent of the artist, but the actual documentation of that agreement and of that consent doesn't exist anymore. So we don't necessarily know whether the artist approved the end result or not. Um, and that, I think, is a very important distinction in determining what point in the artwork's life are we trying to get back to when we're doing restoration treatments. Can you talk a little bit more about that in relation to contemporary art and modern art? 
once you started getting paintings where damage to the paintings became more visually evident, um, I'm thinking of hard edge abstraction or geometric abstraction or these big color field paintings, it doesn't hide damage. So a discoloration of a paint um, becomes really obvious in the middle of a single color paint field as opposed to in the middle of an impressionist painting or an ex expressionist painting. So I think it was when these big color field paintings and light paintings um, where you're really utilizing the surface of the material to express the art. That's when it started getting challenging because it was trying to maintain the perfection of a surface mm -hmm. as opposed to reading a surface in, the, in all parts of the surface kind of lending itself to the interpretation of the artwork. Once that happened, they became susceptible to unacceptable levels of damage. Mm -hmm. Damages that would have been accepted in other types of artwork are no longer acceptable in color field painting. So a, a crack can be extremely visually distracting in a color field painting. Mismatched in painting or mismatched over paint can be extremely visually disturbing in a color field painting. Even discolored synthetic varnishes can give a tinge and a dinginess to color field paintings that really flatten it and can really change how they are interpreted. I just also realized that we never went over your transition from like an object's focus. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I touched on it like a Oops. second. I'm curious how you made that transition from an object's, perhaps ethnographic object's-based focus to a painting's focus, mostly modern and contemporary art as well. I fell into ethnographic, I think, at the beginning because of the relationship with the Denver Art Museum, um, which had a strong ethnographic collection and is also just what was being used, I think, for the students um, to introduce them to collections care. Um, and similarly, my internship at the National Museum of American Indian, I was really just trying to get a good, strong museum collections care um, experience, and that one was with that collection. What I saw was a lot of overlap between how ethnographic collections were being cared for and how people were recording the values of them, why these objects were important. Um, I saw a lot of overlap between that and contemporary art. So when I was working at the Museum of the American Indian, we were working with a contemporary artist to refurbish a Kwakwakawak headdress and a lot of the cedar bark and elements that would have decorated the headdress were just gone. They were completely missing or they had deteriorated past the point of usage. And so the conservators and the curators at the museum coordinated with a Kwakwakawak artist to come down and refurbish uh, the headdress. I knew at the time that this was a very unusual thing to be happening in art conservation and in a Smithsonian Museum and how unique it was. There was a lot of video and a lot of excitement about it. And to me, it just made perfect sense. Like, of course you have an artist, like make the art. Um, and so I didn't realize kind of how unique it was for ethnographic collections at that time. Um, and then the more I learned about contemporary art and I, the more I learned about just the variety of values and importances people have on it, 
did and also the life that the artworks accumulate before they go into a permanent collection. I liked a lot of that. Stories that happen that lend themselves to the condition of the artwork. I liked thinking about being part of that story and helping it stay in its intended state on its way to a permanent collection. So a lot of the experiences that I had in ethnographic collections had to do with identifying what aspects of it are important and why is it important to try to preserve them. And I feel like we do a lot of the same thing with contemporary art. We're really identifying the most vulnerable aspects of the artwork, identifying what the artist is trying to express and how they're using the material to express that. I kind of think of a question, a phrase of more into the challenges of contemporary art and how the standards and practices and procedures of historic paintings are no longer able to be applied because of the vulnerabilities and the different values one might have in relation to a contemporary artwork. I would say that the ethics surrounding conservation of contemporary art are fluctuating. And even in the field, people are discussing what is sometimes referred to as bespoke ethics. Um, so determining the what is the ethical solution based on the current factors in place. So instead of trying to apply a generalization to all of contemporary art, it's more of a case-by-case -case basis. I think that's the smart way to do it because of the way that contemporary art is requiring a lot of conservation intervention over the course of its life in a way that I think perhaps traditional paintings did not. A lot more cleaning, a lot more in-painting, a lot more care before it ends up in a permanent. And what are some of the factors that influence why these objects need more care? They're bigger. A lot of, a lot of it I think has to do with the fact that they are larger artworks, so they're a lot more difficult to handle, they're a lot more difficult to ship. Um, another thing is, is that a lot more of them tend to not be framed, um, and so that makes handling more difficult, that makes packing and wrapping more difficult, and they're more likely to get damaged from a lack of a frame. Sometimes it's the materials, so the materials themselves are more inherently vulnerable. A lot of the surfaces are not varnished. purpose of a varnish traditionally was to be a protective layer, so these are all missing their protective layers, and they were never intended to have protective layers. So they are inherently more sensitive to even the slightest uh, physical time. Okay, let's talk about the relationship between perfectionism and the field of art conservation. Where do you think perfectionism comes from and how is it enforced throughout one's career? I love this question. So I read a lot of Brene Brown, and I, I think Brene Brown's been mentioned on your podcast previously, which I love. I think all conservators should probably do a little Brene Brown reading. She calls herself a recovering perfectionist, which I love. Uh, I am also a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> the way that I've interpreted perfectionism from Brene and from the other researchers that I've read up on is I think it's a function of shame. I think perfectionism works in a way to try to keep us from feeling any kind of bad feelings about what we're doing. And if only it could be perfect, then we would be perfect. Um, and we would be above reproach and we would be above shame. I think that it is a like a near cousin to standards. It's like the evil twin to having high standards is. And I think our field absolutely wants to elevate its standards. You know, it wants to keep pushing 
how well we do what we do and also defining what well is. I think sometimes our field seems like it's a little bit at odds with what we as conservators determine are a good job, a level of success of a good job and what our clients are actually asking for. So I think that the fix-it tendencies of conservators, the thing that we like about our field is that we are in charge of figuring out problems in a lot of ways, fixing problems or coming up with solutions to problems. And we do that and sometimes maybe forget that there is no solution to degradation, that there is no actual solution to the end of all things, to, to rotting, to deterioration, that we can only slow it down. And even then we can't often slow it down as slow as we think that we can. So much is outside of our control. And I think perfectionism has to do with that too. I think perfectionism has to do with not wanting to recognize all of the uncertainty that exists, that I can put so much of my intention and my effort behind this treatment and get it looking so good. And then the minute it walks out of that door, I will have no control over what's done to it. And so am I really going to hurt myself and give myself a hard time to achieve a level of perfection that is uh, an illusion? It's only perfect in the studio. How do you think that also gets exacerbated in contemporary art? Because I feel like there's so many more uncertainties regarding conservation ethics and practices. And so it seems like there's more risk. And I see recovering perfectionists having more challenges in their effort to be perfect. Is that something you've experienced? For sure. I would say that I experience it regularly, um, especially with color field paintings and people who are trying to sell these works. You know, their job is to explain to other people why and how what they're seeing of that artwork is okay is fine, um, is not a problem. I think that it becomes difficult to accept changes in artwork. Maybe it's particular to American society. Um, I can't help but make equations to aging in general. We are so unwilling to accept aging and the evidence of aging. Um, and I feel like it, it ties in to that. We want to pretend as if, if things look brand new, they have a higher value. I also feel like there's almost like an invisible pressure to also not talk about mistakes and conservation. Like, how do you think we as a field are doing in terms of talking about our mistakes and how can we get better? It's a very big question to ask. It's a huge question. And I, I want to believe that we've gotten better at it, especially because these mistake sessions that are hosted at the annual meeting. So it's, there's at least now an awareness that at least one conversation is happening, right? There's a mistake session at our annual meeting. So at least one conversation is happening about it. I feel like it's similar to salaries and to pay rates and to what we're charging. Like there are some topics that are considered rude almost to talk about. You don't talk about money, right? It's like it's rude or maybe not even unprofessional, but you're you're giving something away. You're giving some kind of power away, perceived maybe, that if, if you're admitting that you make mistakes. Um, I've been doing this for 20 years. I make mistakes. I absolutely do. It's the size of your mistakes that count. <laughs> size matters. Um, and also just how you learn from them. Like if you keep making mistakes because you haven't actually learned from the first one, then yeah, that's you should probably stop. But there's mistakes and then there's mistakes. You know, there's... There's preventable ones where it's really obvious how you got yourself there. And you're like, ugh, if only I hadn't done that, 
right? Where it's real obvious. And then there's some that you're like, I really don't know how, like, I don't like where I've ended up, but I really don't know how I, I could have gotten anywhere else and gotten and moved forward. And that's where I feel like private practice is a little tough because you have to move forward. You can't just always keep think, something parked on the side because you haven't figured it out. Like you have to move forward in some capacity and there's only so many mock-ups that you can do. You can't mock up everything. You can't mock up 60 years of age. You can't even mock up this original media sometimes. So I do think that there comes a point in private practice where you have to try and the only thing to try on is the actual object. And we hate saying that. We hate saying, I have to practice on the object. Mm -hmm. But you do, and you end up doing tiny little tests and you try to find a dis discrete area and try to get enough information from that tiny little test to feel comfortable moving forward. Mm -hmm. It's really hard, it's really challenging. Um, I would say that I've gotten really good at knowing where my cans of worms are and being like, that's where I need to slow down. That's where I'm going to get mm -hmm. in trouble. I think also related to that too is not managing emotions, but like acknowledging emotions as you have these obstacles that you're facing in your work. Can you talk about your experience with that? If that's something you've experienced and strategies for managing emotions when you have this roadblock and you have to move forward. That's a great question. I would say that I have, over the years, as I've matured, slowly gotten better at managing my emotions. When I was in school and shortly after, I was definitely more inclined to try to push through, um, which is where you get mistakes on the object, on the, on the artwork. Now I'm more likely to go for a walk. And I think that private practice does lend itself to this really well. If one thing is challenging, you can actually distract yourself with, with a different treatment. And sometimes that actually gives you the right energy or the right information to answer the other question. Sometimes I can actually park something for a week and it might require that I reach out to the client. I need to chew on it. I need to maybe read a little bit more or have some conversations with some colleagues. Sometimes when I'm running into problems, it's because, do you ever hear that phrase? Uh, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. You know, sometimes you're like, you're trying so hard to make something work when you're actually using the wrong tool entirely and you won't necessarily know that until you talk to somebody else, ideally a colleague, but not always. Sometimes if you have a, a group of people or a group of friends who you can just explain the challenge to, um, and they might give you a random good idea. You never know. Like I've, I've been, I've been given some good ideas from people who are not conservators and you just need the time. You need the time to sit on it and think about it. When I see a painting that's going to be a can of worms, I make sure that it's not on deadline. If it's on deadline, I tell them I probably can't help you or I can't do the extent of treatment that you're looking for. I like to take on really, really difficult, challenging projects because I like to have something that I'm chewing on in my brain on the background. And so it's good to have those types of projects to just have as much time as you need but at the same time you can't just be forgetting about it you can't just park it in the back and it's not going to fix itself i'd like to pivot now to ethics and morality how has the ethics and morality in terms of conservation that you learned in your education been complicated when you moved to a private practice setting i think a lot of my understanding of the grounds for the ethical approach to conservation came from an idea that we are preserving these artworks for the public or public consumption. And that I think is very rooted in museum conservation ethics. 
when I went into private practice, it became very clear that there are not enough museums in the world to put every painting into, nor does every painting want to go into a museum, um, or nor does every museum want to acquire every painting. So what is the ethical approach to an artwork that is in someone's personal possession? It's easier to think about this when it's a fine art piece and the Visual Artist Rights Act applies. Um, so then you can work with the artist's intent and you know, maintaining the original impression of the artwork the way that the artist intended. But when it's not, when it's an artifact or folk art or an unknown artist or personal art, it gets a little more complicated. I've been in positions where my proposal for how to approach a treatment was very conservation-based. So I was using reversible materials and reversible approaches and minimally invasive, but I was really hesitant about how well that treatment would turn out. And I could feel myself trying to apply a methodology to the treatment that I knew wouldn't work. But the only alternative was to do something that I thought was less reversible um, because it would be directly interacting with the original material and manipulating and changing the original material. So like remelting original material as opposed to uh, piecing it together or adhering it back together. But I think contemporary art requires that um, in order for it to still have the power that it had when it was made just a few years ago. I think that trying to repair contemporary art with non-original materials to try to meet some museum standard when it's not at a museum yet is not necessarily the best approach for the long-term well-being of the artwork. And it's definitely not helping the artist. Do you give like a specific case study or general example to kind of demonstrate? Um, I think a lot of things that involve wax, a lot of things with contemporary wax um, because of the nature of wax. Um, another material that I've run into lately is tar. Tar as media, uh, not in the old traditional uses as a bitumen paint, but literally as media directly on a surface. It doesn't dry. It becomes brittle. It keeps changing shape and form. Every time you look at it sideways, it changes shape. <laughs> I'm thinking also of like Linda Benglis's wax um, sculptures. They're just layers and layers of pigmented wax and they chip and they break just like if you dropped a candle on the floor. Um, if you bump the corner of one of those wax sculptures, a chunk of wax is gonna come off. And I don't know if you've ever tried to put a chunk of a candle back together. You can just picture that, yeah. You have two options. You can try to glue it, what can glue to wax, a couple things, or you remelt it. And when you remelt it, you're basically changing the crystal formation in the wax. So you're never gonna get the same shape. You're never gonna get the same surface. It's always gonna look a little different. Thinking of like a sheet of ice that you drop yeah, and trying to glue that yeah. back together versus like melting it and freezing it again to get that right? surface. Exactly. Yeah. So your studio has recently gone under a state of rebranding. Can you talk about that process and sort of the logistics and experience of trying to brand yourself in conservation? Sure. Sure. Um, yes. So I've recently rebranded um, to Flux Art Conservation from Albertson and Noonan Art Conservation. And a couple different reasons for that, but mostly I just wanted the name to represent the new um, the new format of the business and how it's going to be moving forward. And in thinking about the new business, I had to come up with a name and, and then uh, you introduced me to this idea of developing a more 
strategic uh, branding guide. And I had done the business startup work before um, years ago. So I had done like the mission statement and a vision statement and identifying who my, you know, key, key people are. So I'd felt pretty good about how the business was organized in terms of it meeting its mission and its goals. But I was having a hard time creating a brand for myself, um, for, for, you know, lack of another word, and an, an external identity um, for myself, for the business. And so there's, again, there's things that I knew that I didn't want. Um, I did not want my name necessarily associated with the business because while I do a lot of the treatment, I'm not the only one doing the work in here. And I think that it's nice to recognize that it is a group effort of everybody in this space as opposed to just me the conservator i didn't necessarily want anything that was regional um, because i do work outside of philadelphia and and i might take the business with me if i ever move so i wanted something that really represented the challenges of contemporary art which is the fact that it's in a constant state of change the materials are constantly changing the environment is constantly changing uh, the what is being considered valuable about the artwork or how valuable the artwork is constantly changing. The owners are constantly changing. Um, the caretakers are changing. So I thought that flux art conservation really worked well. The idea of flux to be in a constant state of change really appealed to me. The next step after finding the name and having a sense of the mission of the business and what I wanted to do was to pin down more of a style um, and I had a lot of trouble with that. So I decided to actually outsource that. And I've recently hired a um, designer, a branding designer, um, to pull together some options in terms of uh, font style and uh, logo design and colors, like our kind of branding colors that we'll use. And I think that's been very, it's going to be very useful for me to have l limited options and more specific options as opposed to me trying to come up with it for myself because I think I would just change my mind every day. I had a question about certification. I've had thoughts on certification. Okay. Sure. Okay. I have thoughts on certification and they have changed. So when I was in grad school, they did one of the last surveys and votes on certification. And it was very dramatic at the time. And a lot of the students were upset uh, because the way that the proposal was, was basically students weren't automatically certified. And a lot of people felt at that time that the amount of work that was put in to get into a grad school, the amount of work that is done during your grad school should make you a certified conservator and should differentiate you from people who did not go through the academic background. Now that I'm here, <laughs> now that I'm here way on the other side, I definitely think that the education that conservators have coming out of grad school is extremely valuable and should not be underestimated. I think that a lot of conservators are ready to do good work right out of grad school very good work. I, I would still feel like they need to be supported better um, and distinguished from people who have not gone through that program because the type of work that they do is different. It would be extremely difficult to certify somebody on how to do specific work, but I don't think it would be very difficult to understand if somebody is doing good work. It would be hard to pin it down into numbers and data right? It would be hard to standardize it. And that's what I think certification is trying to do is to standardize expertise. And I think that there comes a point, I think we can standardize our beginning education, 
right? That's how we got the graduate programs. But after a point, you can't standardize the expertise. Like, am I a good paintings conservator? Yes, on the paintings that I treat. I could be a really bad paintings conservator on a painting that I have no idea how to treat. Not all paintings are you know, the same. What do you envision in the certification process and in, in standardizing what a certified conservator should be? And why? What is the end goal behind certification? I feel like in the private sector, a lot of the conversation has been that the end goal is to try to stop bad restorers from getting work. They're always going to get work. There's always going to be somebody who that hits their budget. I mean, it's just, it's like getting your car serviced. You can take it to the dealership or you can take it to the guy around the corner. I don't know what the point of certification is for. I don't think it'll provide any legal protections and I don't think it will provide any working protections for museum workers. I think the only thing that it could potentially do is restrict who could work in the private sector. And also, let's say we did find a perfect standardization for conservation. If the client doesn't know that that exists, then it's not going to be something they even consider when looking for conservators. Like, I feel like there's so little understanding of conservation as a field overall that even if you have a perfect certification mm -hmm. process, would they even recognize it? Or would that be part of their decision-making process, especially when they're on a budget? It's budget, ultimately, because I think for people who are looking for our services for artworks in their private collection, this is a luxury service. Mm -hmm. My last question is, what is an unlikely but necessary part of running your own business that you think listeners should know about? Yeah, something that you probably maybe didn't know that you would need is therapy skills. Talking your clients down um, or through the process, um, especially if, it, they're, if it's very emotional, if something catastrophic has happened, if you're dealing with like an emergency response or something like that. And also just in general, being very open to understanding that they have their own reasons for why this is valuable and that's, that's all that matters. I've had clients be overly concerned about the treatment that I'm gonna undertake to the point of not listening to me explain how safe the treatment is <laughs> because they're so, so worried about overcleaning, so worried about overcleaning. And then I'll be explaining to them how I'm going to keep from overcleaning. And, they're just not even hearing that. They're just so worried about overcleaning. So I think validating those concerns because they are very real and, you know, again, emphasizing what it is you're going to do to, to limit that and protect that. I think that's totally valid. That's the end of my questions. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with me. I really appreciate it. And this has been great. You're welcome. This is fantastic. Thank you. It's a great podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more information on the podcast, please visit theprivateproject.com. On the website, you can view a complete episode list, submit your feedback, and donate to support the project. All donations go directly to the interviewees, who take time out of their busy schedules to talk to me. This also incentivizes those not in my network to be interviewed and allows me to bring more diverse content to you. Thank you for your support.